If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? We will take it easy on the memes. It's Monday, September 28th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We have Trump's taxes. That is the spiel. We have a debate tomorrow. That is the interview. But now let us talk about the judge. Because we have a judge and Trump's gonna need her. Amy Coney Barrett, lots of kids, one with Down syndrome. She says she would never have considered an abortion. I get it. She's smart Sarah Palin. But Palin nursed her grievances with artistry. Comey Barrett is outsourcing hers. Or at least her champions are stepping forward to take offense on her behalf. I don't know if you heard. It's not that the Democrats want to keep abortion legal. It only seems like that's what's going on. Really, they're just anti-Catholic, even though the Senate has 22 Catholics and 12 of the 22 are Democrats. Eugene Scalia, the current Secretary of Labor, who is, yes, Antonin Scalia's son, was on Fox News Sunday advancing this anti-Catholic charge and not even in the case of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. No, it was another judge and listen to which senator was accused of calling him a scheming papist. The Democrats are casting about for anything by which they might seek to oppose an exceptional nominee. The other thing I expect we may hear about uh, is her faith, which, as you know, was something she was attacked for last time. The Democrats embarrassed themselves when they did it, but they've done it with other nominees. We had a nominee uh, of the president to a court uh, a little more than a year ago who was attacked for being a member of the Knights of Columbus, which is a uh, Catholic organization, has existed for more than a century. And uh, Senator uh, Hirono of uh, Hawaii and Senator Kamala Harris both uh, attacked this man for being a member of the Knights of Columbus, which is just a a Catholic organization that uh, accepts Catholic faith. Kamala Harris attacking on the attack, attacking knights. Hope she brought her catapults and steed. Hear now the truth of that attack. Brian Bisher, who had run for attorney general of Nebraska on an anti-abortion platform, was now looking for a judicial appointment, which the Senate Judiciary Committee, it's its job to confer. And that means, of course, let us think and consider what Mr. Bisher's views on issues like abortion may be. So he was asked via a written questionnaire, that is the form of the attack, a couple of questions written down. He was asked if his membership in the Knights of Columbus, the Catholic charity that my uncle was part of, that a lot of Italian-Americans are part of, a lot of Catholics. Um, he was asked the following question about his membership of the Knights of Columbus. Here we go. This is from Kamala Harris's questionnaire. In 2016, Carl Anderson, leader of the Knights of Columbus, described abortion as, quote, a legal regime that has resulted in more than 40 million deaths. Mr. Anderson went on to say that, quote, abortion is the killing of the innocent on a massive scale. Were you aware the Knights of Columbus opposed a woman's right to choose when you joined the organization? The judge's answer, he wasn't sure. Do you agree with Mr. Anderson that abortion is the killing of an innocent on a massive scale? He wouldn't answer. Do you agree with Mr. Anderson that legal abortion in the United States has resulted in more than 40 million deaths? Again, he deferred the answer. Doesn't matter what he thinks, Bisher said. It matters that I'll follow the law, not based on belief, but the law. Harris went on. In 2008, the Knights of Columbus spent a million dollars to support Proposition 8, a California ballot initiative that defined marriages between a man and a woman. Were you aware the Knights of Columbus opposed marriage equality when you joined the organization? Answer, I don't remember. Were you aware the Knights of Columbus supported Proposition 8 in California? 
Answer, please see my response to question 4A, (laughs) which was the I don't remember thing. That was the attack. That was the entire attack on the Knights of Columbus and therefore Catholicism. By the way, Democrat Patrick Leahy, the senior member of the Judiciary Committee, is himself, he revealed during hearing, a member of the Knights of Columbus. That is it. That's what the Republicans got asking of the Democrats. How dare they attack Catholics with some seemingly pertinent questions on a judge's disposition and outlook, coupled, by the way, with an admission that a key member of the Democratic coalition who is Catholic is also a member of the organization they were said to attack. There was no attack, but the temptation to take umbrage lives loudly within them. On the show today, tax spiel. But first, Philippe Reynas was a Hillary Clinton aide-de-camp and staffer who played an important role in the 2016 debate. He played Donald Trump. Literally, he crawled into the skin of Donald Trump and played Hillary Clinton's sparring partner in preparation for those debates. He stood with Trump's posture. He interrupted Hillary with Trump's blurtations. Reynas is a shrewd tactician who has the battle scars. He stopped by to talk about how Trump talks, how Joe Biden should respond, and what's the best comeback for logic like, I'm not the puppet, you're the puppet. Philippe Reynas, up next. Philippe Reynas is a longtime staffer of Hillary Clinton. He was actually Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Strategic Communications when she was the Secretary of State. For the purposes of this conversation, I wanted to talk to him about what he did in 2016. He did debate prep. In fact, he played the role of Donald Trump in the faux mock debates. And what Philippe would do is he would watch all the Republican debates. I think there were 11 of them. He'd watch them three times, once a general pass, once a Trump only pass, once a standing at the podium and pretending to be Trump pass. And then he would show up with Hillary, not only with a head full of Trump, but a foot full of Trump. He wore lifts to try to simulate the physicality of the man who would be president. We're going to talk to him all about what Joe Biden should do and say and what Trump might do in the upcoming debate. Thank you so much for joining me, Philippe. Thank you for having me. My God, listening to that, it sounds a lot less sane than when I was doing it. Right, right, right. If, for instance, if we didn't pause it, okay, we're going to have Donald Trump as one of the two major party nominees, it would sound totally insane. So really, who is the insane one? Yes. So have you ever talked to, by the way, Alec Baldwin about your Trump impressions? I have not. But you know what? It's they're incomparable. It's not that I have a great impression, although I do have the sort of the staccato language down. If At the time I did. It's a little rusty now. Um, but no, I don't think he has anything to worry about my knocking him off SNL. Because the real purpose of that is, I don't know, maybe it helped you get into the headspace a little, but it certainly helped her face not only the actual words that she would be facing, but perhaps the way he formulates the words, sometimes confusingly, sometimes out of left field. It's just the best way to do debate prep, to have a simulacrum of the person right there. The purpose of debate prep probably overall is to help the candidate really imagine or think through or work through or even act through any possible scenario. Now, if you're Barack Obama and you're preparing to debate Mitt Romney in 2012, obviously you're not worried about 
as many things or not being able to understand your opponent because they torture the English language. But with Donald Trump, you just have to be able to almost function by tuning out the histrionics. I mean, it's a terrible analogy, but imagine Yo-Yo Ma trying to perform at Carnegie Hall with a guy 10 feet away with an air horn. I mean, it, it's, it's near impossible, but it's a lot better if you try. And you're supposed to study and prepare for big moments in your life. And, you know, she took it seriously. So how much of what she actually faced in any of those three debates was stuff that you prepped her for that maybe the general public didn't see coming? Because a lot of his a lot of his shtick is well known and you know what he's going to say. Right. I'm not the puppet. You're the puppet uh, deflecting everything in the specific lines, build the wall, all that. But how many were little nuggets that you unearthed, you found an inkling of in this or that speech or this or that debate? And then there she was hearing it for the second time, not the first. So what's funny you say that, because before we started, before we had our first uh, you know, encounter, I told the whole team look, 100% of what I say is going to sound insane. But 90% of it, he has said in one form or another, in one place or another. And they all, you know, nodded and said, whatever. I don't think they're really paying attention to what I said. And fast forward to the first debate, and uh, we were in an anteroom at Hofstra University watching the debate. And at one point early on, Trump said something out of left field that I had said. And they kind of all turned around in slow motion and looked at me like, you weren't kidding. And when she came off stage, someone said to her, did you see Philippe throughout the debate? And she said, no, but every time he opened his mouth, I heard Philippe. There's really nothing we didn't do. There's nothing I didn't simulate that after the, the three debates, I said, I wish I had done that. And some of the quirkier ones they just stand out, you know, because he, he does do things over and over again. And growing up in New York, it's not like I had to introduce myself to Trump, but he really does have his, uh, his favorite hits and he kind of hits them over and over again. So let's talk about what Donald Trump will say and what Joe Biden should say about it. We've been helped a little bit because Chris Wallace, moderator of the first debate, has told us the topics are going to be the Trump and Biden records. Well, thank, thanks for that insight. The Supreme Court, COVID-19, the economy, race and violence in our cities, and the integrity of the election. I would assume most of those would have been raised, although people are looking at race and violence in our cities. Did just the release of the topics do anything to concentrate or direct the debate prep efforts? Getting six topics from the debate commission about how the first debate will be structured. Yeah, that's great. And Chris Wallace will do yeoman's work in trying to focus on that. But this isn't really a debate. I know that's cliche, but this is really a parallel interview that Chris Wallace is conducting with, you know, alternating between the two candidates. And the audience is the Super Bowl size number of people watching. And, you know, one of the things that Joe Biden's team is probably telling him is that you will never before or after this debate have spoken to more people at once. So you can squabble with Donald Trump all you want. He's going to try to squabble with you as much as possible. 
But the moments that you need to look for, the ones where you are looking to camera and telling people, this is who you are, this is what I believe, this is why you should trust me to be your president, almost as if Trump's not standing there. Now, that obviously is standing there. Trump is probably going to make every issue into race <laughs> and violence in American cities because he doesn't want to talk about COVID. He doesn't want to talk about all sorts of things that are not good for him in lieu of you know, something he perceives is good for him. So people might think, well, it's hard to pin down what Trump's going to say. He's often said everything and it's opposite. See, I think we have a pretty good idea based on, first of all, that town hall he did with Stephanopoulos, similar situation. And second of all, what he's been saying, he, he cycles through a few lines of attack. So what he's been saying in speeches. So for instance, on COVID, he's not going to say it'll go away in the summer. He's going to say, I was strong. I banned it in China. You were against the China ban. And then he might even bring in some, he might even bring in some, and your son is on the take from China. Does Biden get mad at that and say something about his son? Does Biden get into the tit for tat? You know, I called you generally xenophobic, but not that policy is xenophobic. What does he say? Well, you know, I mean, there's no right answer. And, you know, hopefully Joe Biden wins, but there's also the possibility that he's writing a book in a year and saying, maybe I should have answered the other way. We see Donald Trump debating every day. Yeah, the Stephanopoulos town hall and a couple of other things done. But what we see him do with the press corps is probably the best example. Now, it's not comparable, but here's the the hard question. You want to talk about COVID, about how it's going to be with us. And I, Joe Biden, know how to handle this and get us through this. You, Donald Trump, have not. Now, that's obviously something that's going to happen. Donald Trump is going to, whether it is on this topic or whatever, he's going to find his way pretty quickly to Hunter Biden and possibly even the vice president's deceased son, Beau Biden. I think it's without a doubt that Joe Biden is going to have a strong response because also we've seen him respond to Donald Trump, not on stage together, but he has said, you know, come after me all you want, but you're not going to destroy my family. Now, the real question here is, since Donald Trump is, is one big, I know you are, but what am I? Do you say, look, my son is a good guy, but you know what? You want to talk about kids? Let's pick one of yours. Let's look at Ivanka <laughs> Trump. Let's just say for a moment you did go there. There is a real difference between going after Ivanka and going after Jared. And there's a real difference between going after Ivanka and going after Don Jr., so it is hard to game this out. But if he were, if Joe Biden were to say, but look, you want to go after sons? Well, let's take a look at your son-in-law. The, one of the more unifying issues in America is that no one likes Jared Kushner. So you're, you're not going to get in trouble talking about Jared being incompetent, arrogant, and, you know, corrupt. But if you were to go after Ivanka, even though she's arguably the most corrupt of them, and she is a bona fide White House advisor, you'd have a real hard time. You'd, you'd ha- there'd be a real debate afterwards about whether you went too far, even if you were constructive. And, you know, it's not really clear who the hell we're talking to. I mean, who are these undecided people? And if you're not talking to undecided people, if you're just trying to get your people out, then, you know, they'll probably love it if you go after, go for the jugular. You know, Donald Trump's entire strategy is to stand around waiting for Joe Biden to fall on his face. And that's a pitiful enough strategy to begin with. But Donald Trump is waiting for it to happen without even trying to push 
Joe Biden. Like he's just actually waiting for Joe Biden to have some kind of horrible moment without doing anything to trigger it. And I mean, that's, I'm sorry, that's as likely to happen to Donald Trump as it is to anybody. So there are a couple things that we know what Donald Trump has been saying, and the rebuttals are just so blatantly clear. Uh, I'll list a couple examples. He keeps promising us we're going to have a great health care bill, and he never comes up with one. And Joe Biden could say, well, you told Chris right here on the stage, you told him that this summer, and you told, and you know, list three or four other times, you specifically said, we're going to have a great bill, and you never did. Now, that's an obvious and I think very good critique. Do you use it because it's not new, or do you use it, maybe you do use it because we're, we are talking about persuading people who haven't watched before and haven't maybe been exposed to that set of facts and that critique. Um, we could just take that specific example. You know, what might be the best play to highlight the fact that Donald Trump has made this promise over a crucial issue and seems to have no actual real plan behind it? Chris Wallace being the moderator is a huge help, I think, to the debate watcher because Chris Wallace is prepping right now, too. He's probably got his own mock debates and he's trying to decide where his red lines are for tolerating Trump's lies. Biden, he's got to pick which doozy. How many times can Biden say, come on, man, you know, you know his, his mm -hmm. refrain for knowing it could be a drinking game. Like every time he says, come on, man, the country takes a shot. Um, yeah. And the malarkey is piling up. Yeah. In that, in that case, that was a huge issue in 2018 in terms of the Democrats taking the House back. And that's an important one. There is one other option, which I think is important because Trump does it. And if you don't do it, and if you don't do it first, it kind of does take its toll. You know, we all watched movies like The War Room and the debate's over and everyone runs to the spin room and tries to put the best face on things. Donald Trump doesn't wait for the debate to end to say that he won the debate. I mean, he stands there. He might omit it into it, say, you know, I've already, I've won this debate. Everyone watching knows it. And it, it, we laugh off when he says the people are saying and everyone knows it kind of thing. But there is an effective part of that. And I actually think it would behoove Joe Biden to do it in the sense of very early on, possibly, I don't know if they have opening statements, but, you know, to say his positive shtick and then to finish by saying, look, folks, you all know what's going to happen here. And, you know, Mr. President, we all know, everyone home watching, the whole country knows everything you're going to say. They know that you're lying. They know you're going to deny when you said something, and that means that you did say it. The country sees through you, and I can't stand here, and Chris can't every two seconds cut in and make sure you don't get away with it. But I want you to know, the whole country knows. And I think that would be very powerful, because also it would drive Trump crazy. Um, and not, and I don't just mean crazy for the sake of crazy, but you're beating him to the punch on his own trick. First of all, you're, you're being just direct with the audience. You're not being subtle in what you should be watching for. You are saying, hey, 100 million people, he's going to lie. Let's all talk about his lying and let's count together. And you don't need to be subtle. You should just tell everyone what's going to happen. And by the way, it's accurate. And by doing that, the difference between the way you phrased it is, yes, Joe Biden can say you sat with Chris Wallace and you had this exact same 
answer and it was wrong, it becomes a he said, she said. People like you and I or anyone who does you know, research or follows this knows the reality of this, but that's not what happens. Trump floods the zone with lies and misinformation, and it gets to the point where there's no fact checker alive, even in real time, that can do it. So, so Biden almost has to say at the beginning, you've already been caught lying. <laughs> you're going to, everyone knows you're a liar. Everyone knows that you're going to lie for 90 minutes. And, you know, I might not be articulating it well, um, but that's how I would really recommend that Biden, um, uh, one of the points he makes early on is to just almost be the narrator and to, to hover above and kind of be a spoiler by telling everyone this is what's going to happen. And then that's how people will likely see it. Right. And remember, there are three debates. So you could use that ploy in a later debate or use it in the first debate. And in debate two, say, remember what I told you? And we all know that happened now, Mr. President, you're talking to actual voters. You're going to lie to them. That is it's good. That is brilliant. That Hopefully, keeps giving. That's brilliant. Hopefully Joe Biden's team is listening because that's the combination of, I think, of the one two punch of what, what we said. I, I think it's powerful. I think it's powerful. And because if you get into his word salad, um, I mean, he's become very hard to understand. And I don't mean that in a psychobabble decompensating kind of way. I do believe that that is an issue, but he's become just a one big litany of grievances and his, he's just hard to follow sometimes. And I know that sounds, I don't know how it sounds, but if you're on standing on stage, I mean, how, how often do you watch TV or, or hear what he says and you just say, huh? Joe Biden has to be able to understand what's being said. Nothing is easy with him. And it's really not a matter of not knowing what you're going to do. It's a matter of not knowing when and how many times to do it. Because you cannot every minute say, there he goes again, there he goes again. Because then the problem becomes you're the guy who said, there goes again every minute. Philippe Reines is a political consultant. He prepped Hillary, he's a State Department official, and he once crawled inside the mind and skin of Donald Trump. My condolences and thanks. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you for having me. And now, the spiel. If you had told me any time between yesterday and five years ago when we first started wondering about what would be in Trump's taxes, if you were to ask me, what do you expect we'd find in there? I'd have said something like, well, I don't know. But at the very least, we'd find that Trump greatly exaggerates his wealth and also that he's engaged in aggressive, possibly illegal tax avoidance schemes. And that is exactly what we did find. Though, what I thought would be at the very least also seems to be at most what we found. Maybe not. There is a the issue of a big payment coming due. Perhaps some of his tax avoidance schemes, now that they're public, will be scrutinized by the law. But it does seem that in terms of naming specific investors, investees, partners that could be damaging to Trump, there was less in the tax returns than perhaps our worst case scenario would lead us to believe. That said, it's bad. Let's not lose sight of the fact that this is bad and should be shocking 
and should be a scandal. So Donald Trump didn't pay any taxes in 11 out of 19 years, only paid $750 in 2016 and 2017, paid his daughter, an officer of his company, as a consultant on projects that she was in charge of. And he's also lost hundreds of millions of dollars on businesses like his golf courses that he portrays as being important and profitable parts of his empire. Interesting. But the key questions are, is any of this A, illegal, B, unethical, C, clearly hypocritical? The problem is that Trump has thus far proven to be impervious to those things in the minds of a significant number of voters. Of course, it's also true that a slightly larger number of voters have very much convinced themselves that he is hypocritical, that he is unethical, and that he probably does engage in illegalities. So we come back to the question of, will the revelations hurt him? All right, I want to say this. It doesn't really have to be the question. We often say, oh, we knew all this already, or that's not a news flash, or it's been priced in, or it's baked into the cake. And while those ideas might be true as kind of a crude political analysis, really analysis is too exalted a word for it, I do hate those arguments. If the information is new, and, and if that information does further show that Trump is unqualified or criminal, it doesn't matter if a cadre of MAGA zombies are unmoved. It's important because his supporters will not be moved, and that doesn't matter that much. There is no standard he could violate that will make his supporters lose faith. So let us not even concern ourselves with that 40 to 43% of the electorate. Maybe we should focus on the 6% of the electorate that pollsters say still have their minds not totally made up. Will this move them? I would guess not. But even if it doesn't, do the revelations document for us, for history, for an informed citizenry, for the record, do they show actions that are newly illegal, unethical, or hypocritical? Maybe yes and certainly, in that order, of those three standards. But they don't do any of that so remarkably that a new kind of transgression has been revealed. Also, the illegality is currently being debated via an IRS audit of a refund that was approved 10 years ago. Seems to have been haggled with ever since. There's also the question of golf courses hemorrhaging money. But of course, Donald Trump has long had a penchant for splashy, high-profile investments that the bottoms fall out of. Steak, vodka, universities, casinos, those come to mind. So you could say, okay, what this shows, and this goes to the hypocrisy, what this shows is that the public-facing persona of the successful businessman doesn't match the reality. It's all a Potemkin village. It is, and it does, and that was also clearly known, but I think in this specific case, you could also say that Donald Trump does know how to make money. The thing is, it's not from the business deals. It's just from being Donald Trump. It's via the persona of a globetrotting businessman. So when Donald Trump gets paid by NBC to play a globetrotting businessman, what does he have to do? Well, to support that persona, he has to go out and trot the globe and buy high-profile businesses because that's attending to his core business, which is being a globetrotting businessman. And if the hotels or golf courses lose money, in a way, that's okay. They are business expenses that are used to keep up the image, and the image is his real business. Yes, this is an inversion of what he is 
positioning himself as, his deals or losses that underwrite his image as a deal maker, which may prompt a neutral observer to ask, what's the foundation and what's merely the facade? But have you ever been inside a Trump property? It's all gilded exterior and the bones inside generally decrepit. Also, remember when I referenced neutral observers? Not many of them left. I read this report having read and really been affected by, actually, the 2018 New York Times report on Trump's inheritance. I think that won the Pulitzer. That was shocking and solid stuff. Trump used sham businesses. Remember the all-county building supply and maintenance company to double bill his father, Fred Trump's company, and surreptitiously transfer wealth to Fred's kids, his inheritors. He used GRAT, the grantor retained annuity trust in aggressive and, it would seem, illegal ways. They're a gift to the ultra-wealthy. He took more than it was even giving legally. But, you know, all that stuff's outside the statute of limitations. Then again, I also remember the New Yorkers reporting on all the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations. Those are very well documented. His transgressions were, in fact, illegal. But just as the inheritance stuff falls outside the statute of limitations, the Foreign Corrupt Practices stuff falls outside the usual discretionary thrust of prosecutors. And obstruction of justice, well, that was all right there in the Mueller report, but that was outside the political interests of Republicans in the Senate. You know, this report just underlines how clear and obvious it is that there's never going to be an outside force that delivers us from Trump. It won't be a special prosecutor, the IRS, state prosecutors, any report so explosive, a video so embarrassing that he just can't show his face again, a report so precise in revealing his hypocrisy that he has to resign in disgrace. It always has been on us to vote him out. And I know many of us are despairing that that might not happen, or if it does, that Trump will find a way to cheat his way out of that consequence as well. I know, I hear you. But I do have to think it's just as likely that all this evidence that we've been saying, oh, it's not new and it doesn't move the needle, seems to imply that the needle is stuck at acquiescence or just stuck at a Trump win. But maybe where the needle, the unmoving needle is stuck is people, enough people really wanting this guy gone. Maybe since all the revelations have come out and they've already been absorbed, we say that. But what are they absorbed into? They're absorbed into a system that is going to reject him. It's not changing minds because we're at majority disapproval. We have been with Trump since three weeks into his presidency, and that hasn't really changed. He doesn't actually escape electoral accountability. There just hasn't been an election yet. Not a presidential one. The midterms, he lost terribly. And now that there is an election in 36 days, maybe the accountability that seems to have eluded him will reveal itself to have been a fiction. Dystopic fiction, perhaps a fairy tale, it all depends on your point of view. So the new batch of tax returns doesn't represent the game changer. It should be damning, but damn it, it isn't. Maybe it's just another load on the side of the ledger that argues to a people who generally do not need any more convincing that Donald Trump should no longer be president. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader, uh, you know, in an ethereal sense, and Margaret Kelly, in point of fact. 
they think that $70,000 for Trump's hair is actually a reasonable expense. I mean, that thing is as recognizable as the Nike swoosh. Jamila Bay helped with our show today. Her son is named for one of history's great comedians. Her Zoom avatar for another. I figure that as I get to know Jamila by tomorrow, we will find out her boat is named for Kippadada. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Though we pay her an amount that exactly matches what she reports to the IRS as a consultant. Hmm. The gist, if you object to me, a successful podcast host, reporting merely $750 in taxable income, and you think that's too little, realize I have a self-deprecating sense of humor, which allows me an ample write-off year after year. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.